0: Welcome to the Wondering Toward Wisdom podcast. Today we show how evaluative outlooks relate to Christian doctrine, particularly the Nicene Creed, as a way of talking about Christian unity. This discussion was spurred on in part because we've been talking about evaluative outlooks, and we wanted to show how they work out in areas that are not strictly apologetic or philosophical, though there is, of course, uh, some relation. It was also encouraged by the idea, the sort of odd idea, that, that maybe we should ground Christian unity uh, in respect and a kind of respect that that excludes conversation about disagreement. Now, the conversation includes a pretty heavy criticism of the church as a whole, of which we're a part, uh, our inability or perhaps unwillingness to pursue this kind of deeper unity, the central importance of unity for evangelism and apologetics, as stated very clearly by Jesus himself in John 17, as well as a rather uh, foolish attempt to compare the Nicene Creed to the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. In short, Joel and I, as a couple of basement-dwelling philosophers, explain to all you pastors, priests, and denominational leaders how you should run things. But not really. We, we do make some suggestions about how our evaluative outlook, formed and directed by Scripture and the creeds, should cause our unity, unity to be far more, far richer and far more active than we respect. But how this looks in the day-to-day, that's sort of beyond our pay grade, and that's for other people to be able to figure it out. If you'd like to learn more, please check out our website, TacticalFaith.com. Uh, there you'll find blogs that are down on related topics, uh, particularly evaluative outlooks and the idea of faith and so forth, the things that we've been writing about, uh, as well as our other podcast, TF Radio, which includes interesting interviews and discussions uh, with some pretty uh, incredible and intelligent people. Uh, You can also find information there about possible events that are coming up, as well as opportunities to give if you'd like to support us. Thank you much for listening. Welcome back to the Wandering Toward Wisdom podcast.
1: Uh, I'm Joel, and I'm here with Travis again, as always. And uh, we're going to start transitioning out of our month-long discussions on evaluative outlooks. And I mean, that's, it's going to be in the background because really anything Travis and I think about is in terms of evaluative outlooks, we're going to start kind of applying it a little more, moving it out of just talking about the evaluative outlooks themselves. And, um, today we're going to, we're going to talk about Christian unity and what does it mean? Um, what, what role do evaluative outlooks play in this? And, um, and what what should we strive for when we're thinking about Christian unity? Um, so that part of the reason this came up, I noticed on Facebook that um, you know I, I went to a Christian college. I was a Bible major, so I know a lot of people who became pastors. So all over my Facebook feed, I've been seeing things about uh, churches reopening after the the uh, shelter at home uh, stuff related to to COVID nineteen and you know seeing how different churches have handled it and um a couple different churches have said uh we are committed to preserving christian unity by respecting differing opinions on what we should be doing with respect to uh reopening things after you know after the shelter at home how quickly how slowly and um saying that we're going to respect others opinions because we prize Christian unity over, over that. And one thing that struck me is it seems like, like respect might be the wrong framing mechanism that, that it's not about, it's not just about respecting. It's about loving each other. Um, Loving someone who has a different opinion than you is, is, more about Christianity than just sort of some other ethics. You know, when, when we talk about the, uh, the golden rule there, there, there may be, you can, I mean, this is debatable, but there are discussions about, um, you know, whether that shows up in, in other sources. But one thing that's, that's clear is that's unique to Christianity is this idea of loving, loving your enemy, loving those who disagree with you, like actually loving your neighbor um, and not just, you know, doing, to others as you would have them do unto you, but going this additional step. Um, respecting someone's opi- differing opinions, that seems a low bar that lots of people should clear, but Christian unity should push us towards something more than that, uh, towards towards love. Today we're going to talk about how do evaluative outlooks play into this idea of unity? What does it mean for unity to to be about loving those you disagree with, loving loving you know, being connected, being united in love, despite our differences, um, we're gonna we're gonna go with it and see see where we end up. Uh, we have some rough ideas where we're gonna end up on, on this, but uh, we're gonna talk through it and maybe give maybe you guys are gonna get a glimpse into how Travis and I process things um, as we as we try to figure out what does it mean um, to apply these things to. Um, to, uh, our lives, uh, you know, as, as the body of Christ.
0: Right. I apologize, uh, for you having to take a glimpse at how we process things, but let's maybe, maybe we should start with that, with that, with the distinction between, or what, what is sort of implied in the idea of respect? Cause I think, I think a lot of people would say, yeah, we should respect, but respect is just a way that love manifests in situations where we disagree with one another, right? So someone could could just respond and say, you're just getting picky about words. You're trying to put some sort of higher value. Uh, But if I think about, maybe that's what we should first talk about is what what is meant by respect in this situation? So let's just paint the picture clearly, right? There's going to be some churches where uh, the parishioners and the pastor are very much opening up as soon as they possibly can. They think this is all overdone, so on and so forth. And there are other ones that are being very careful and think we should draw back. We should, we should hold back, avoid the singing, you know, keep distancing, have, you know, go from one service or two services and multiply it out. So people have more space and so on and so forth. Um, and people are pretty vehement can be pretty vehement on the different sides of this. And we can go even further and talk about different political views and different leanings on, on all kinds of different sorts of issues. Um, what does, what does respect, we, we know what it means. Well, it's not really clear to me what it means to respect someone who has who, to respect. I know what it means to respect someone who has a different opinion. I don't know what it means to respect a different opinion that you feel very strongly is wrong. That just sounds like they're just using a word for despise, but replacing it with a nice word. Um, so the question is, what is implied in this idea that we're going to respect those who have different opinions for the sake of unity? Like, what kind of unity... I guess this is the issue, and I think this is the issue you're pointing at. What kind of unity is implied in the idea that we respect those of differing opinions? Full stop.
1: So, so it, my, my concern is that... Um, when you is that it's when you respect some when you're saying respect differing opinions for the sake of unity it's more of a don't rock the boat for the sake of unity kind of thing it's a we're going to um, push this to the background and um, and not and just act like this isn't this isn't a concern um, that our our differences aren't a concern and, I mean, it is worth noting that um, the things we agree on in, in, as Christians are much bigger and more important than the things we disagree on when it comes to these kinds of things. Um, so, yes, on one hand, there, there is a sense in which we need to put it in its proper place and not let it rock the boat. But on the flip side, um, unity is not homogeneity. It's not everyone being the same or looking the same, looking like everyone thinks the same, but it's, it's the hard work of done in love. Um, well, I'm putting cards on the table. Um, it's the hard work done in love to, to come together, even despite your, your differences.
0: Well, let me, let me, maybe we can, I can pick at that a little bit because, uh, in the back of my mind, uh, as we were talking before and now is Philippians two. Um, but let me, let me try to bring it up a couple of different points, just from what you've said there. It sounds like when, when somebody says, well, I respect your opinion, it's sort of like, I'm going to I'm going to respect your opinion, even though I disagree with it. And so we're sort of agreeing to disagree, which means when I say, I respect your opinion, and it's another way of saying, I don't want to talk about this. And so, therefore, there's a disagreement that can be fairly vehement. Some people think you're trying to kill my grandma. Other people think you're trying to turn us into I don't know, Soviet Russia. And um, we're just going to respect each other, but or respect each other's opinions. But when you are together with someone in love, and you have a strong and you have a significant disagreement, it and I'm not saying we're trying to become homogeneous, but it seems like. If you have a significant disagreement about a particular plan of action, it's not something you just say, well, oh, don't worry about it. You, right. It leads you to discuss it, not, not to hate one another and beat each other down. Like, like it's, We tend to think that disagreement must necessarily constitute calling someone Hitler, <laughs> claiming, claiming, uh, claiming some sort of moral monstrosity in the other person. Because that's how you apparently win arguments or get people get your side to clap for you or whatever. Um, but that's all nonsense, and it should not exist. Frankly, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't be that way. M- really, almost any time, I think there are times to call out monstrosities, but we do it way, way too much.
1: Or we, we, we call out monstrosities that are actual monstrosities, not make monstrosities out of everything that hits us the wrong way.
0: Right, we are surrounded by mole hills that we keep declaring are mountains, and they're not. Um, and this happens in the church a lot too. Um, and it seems to me that that what we need to do because because we're so fearful that discussion that disagreement automatically leads us to to enmity and hatred and and moral condemnation. Because of that, we have to simply let's not talk about this. But those aren't the only two options, not talk about it or hate each other, right? And it seems to me that this emphasis on respect is is an admittance that, and here's where there might be something valid in what they're saying. It's a way of admitting that we do not have the tools, the means, the training, or the underlying unity necessary to be able to carry on meaningful, healthy dialogue. Yeah, because it will always devolve into nastiness. Which that right there is very, like when when I when I hear them say we're going to respect one another, that's not a sign that they're choosing a bad path. It's a right. sign that we're so diseased that we are incapable of choosing the right path. Does that? I mean, that's a pretty yeah. heavy condemnation right there. But I'm just that's what it sounds like to me. Uh-huh. Um, churches. I mean, you know, I, I taught at a Bible college for a while and just the Arminian-Calvinist debate, it people were seriously hurt by that debate. And I think in ways that may have sev- even affected, severely affected their, their spiritual lives because, <laughs> because we don't know how to talk about disagreements without turning into... Without some sort of weird sort of condemnation, and so and you know I'm not I don't actually pull punches in the way I generally talk about about things like this too much. Maybe I should, but the idea of of respect is a sign that we don't have the cap. We for some reason we seem to lack the capability to have health healthy constructive dialogue. Does that does that seem right? Is that, that kind of what you're getting at?
1: Yeah, that, that's ex- exactly what I'm getting at. I mean, you know, I th- I, I mean when we start thinking about evaluative outlooks and you know the way that we see things, um you know, I when when I when Travis and I disagree, you know, I eventually get him to my side. But um (laughs) in in all seriousness Now wait a minute.
0: (laughs) Let's let's revisit some history here. Fair
1: enough, fair enough, fair enough. (laughs) But um I think I've said that in previous podcasts. Um but When Travis disagrees with me, my instant reaction isn't, "Well, Travis is an is is an idiot." Like, you know, it's more of a, "Well, I want to hear where he's coming from because I value him and I value his opinion, and I know he's not an idiot. Well, he's not more of an idiot than I am." And
0: yeah, (laughs) there's um, a little bit of debate about that. (laughs)
1: But but th- but it it changes my perception of how I'm going into the conversation. I'm not going into the conversation as I'm trying to win the argument, but rather I'm I'm more prepared to listen because I value him and what he says.
0: Yeah, this happened to me yesterday. I had a friend um, who uh, he lives in the Boston area, and he had this. He 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 ended up calling me up. We're t- talking about stuff related to coronavirus, and I sit sort of on one side, to some extent, a little bit on one side, and he sits a little bit more on the other side. But we're not that—we're not actually not that distant. He and I just have always, from the time I was sort of his volunteer youth pastor uh, to now, we've always had a—he—he's—he loves to debate. He's an energetic debater, but he's also a very loving, caring person, and so it's all in the context of that. And we had we had a we went we went back and forth and we even sort of do we I guess you could say in one way we sort of said things that that outside of our relation if we were said it to someone else it would be considered pretty mean but because we have all this history it was you know it was fine um, and the fact that he's willing to interact and dialogue as a friend is just it it changes your mind in a way that that name calling and shaming and all this other kind of garbage that we do just doesn't accomplish. And it also is much, much, much better uh, than him simply saying, let's not talk about this. I respect, I, I, I disagree with you, but let's agree to disagree. I respect your opinion for the sake of unity or something like that, which is other words, another way of saying, I despise it but because I'm supposed to care about something else, I'm going to pretend like it doesn't matter to me. (laughs) I mean, that's sort of what I hear when I say that it's like when somebody, you know, my past experience, when I was told they love me in Jesus name, but they hate me otherwise, Uh, (laughs) you know, you know, which is understandable. I mean, uh, sometimes I feel the same way about myself, but you know, just being able to have the, the, the healthy dialogue uh, transforms things. But at the heart of our, Relationship is a past of mutual concern, mutual caring, s- mutual suffering together. In, in a lot of ways, um, and uh, that gives this underlying—I uh, don't know if I want to just go directly and say a value of outlook, but an underlying sense of value that 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 casts the whole discussion in a new light where that doesn't happen. So if I, if I'm in an interaction with with some random person on social media or even someone on social media that I kind of know, but I don't have much of a relationship because for some reason you friend everybody and their brother on Facebook, (laughs) uh, I've heard of that guy. Let me send a friend request. Um, Then, or, you know, in some anonymous relationship, there's no undergirding value. There's no underlying value that gives rise to it. And so you're automatically in the relationship of competition. And I feel like that's that's the case with churches. So yeah, we all say we're following Christ, but that doesn't really mean anything, right? I mean, it does mean something. I'm actually saying it means something, but I'm saying for the most part, it really doesn't have that much of an impact on our lives, right? Again, we don't, don't cuss as much we don't drink as much we give up our Sunday mornings we give up some of our money uh you know maybe we you know filter out some of the TV we watch or whatever but it's all these external externalities of I don't do this you don't do this you don't do this you don't do this and you do a little bit of this but in terms of like I drive past a church on Sunday morning there's I don't have this sense of unity In connection with them. Like, I feel like I should. And so if they came out and, you know, they were meeting against the law, you know, against the orders, stay at home orders, or, you know, depending on what side you're on, or they chose not to meet until, you know, we're not going to meet again until 2030. We're just going to be online. Um, uh, you know, depending on which, which, you know, I'm just, I'm just trying to do extremes. Um, I would just look at them as, you know, if I disagree with them, I say, what a bunch of idiots. Like, what is the connection that would make me have that kind of affection with, with somebody I don't know who's also a follower of Christ um, that would give that underlying value so the whole conversation can be cast in this light of love and concern and so on and so forth? Um, is Christianity strong enough to, to pull together strangers? And is it that we agree on a set of doctrines? Is it because we can all hold to the Nicene Creed for the most part, except for you blasted heretics out there? Um, <laughs> what is what is it that that where is Christian unity found? And this is this is where I think we start falling into evaluative outlooks, right? Uh-huh. Um, in fact, arguably the doctrines are there to protect the evaluative outlook. I'm kind of skipping to the end. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Um, uh, but so I, g- I guess how, what is the evaluative outlook that gives rise to this unity? And I, I mean, the answer is love or some such, right? Mm-hmm. All right. And, and well, that's all you need to know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it, it's, it's, it's I mean, as we've talked about, love is a farm work complex yet simple idea than we often want to to treat it um
0: yeah it's simple in its demand uh take up your cross and die for your enemy Mm -hmm. sort of but in trying to get it to to manifest in practical elements in our lives there's too much of us against it um Mm -hmm. And so we qualify, 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 condition, condition, condition. And then that gets to the point where loved almost doesn't mean anything because, again, so it's been so qualified with different conditions that loving my pizza and loving my neighbor. I actually love pizza more. Uh, pizza doesn't wake me up in the middle of the night to help him get up because he fell. And so um, actually pizza does sometimes wake me up in the middle of the night. <laughs> it depends so, so, PC. Yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh but you know, there's so so how how does this manifest let's let's talk about this because we're trying to talk about Christian unity. And obviously the church is about as unified as the international, I don't know, as I don't know, China and, and the US right now. We're about on about the same terms. So we've got you know, I don't know how many different denominations and we split every time somebody disagrees on carpa color or whether drums should be in the service. Um, what is it that should be drawing us together? We have to uh, evaluate about look of love. All right. What is I'm, it? How does that actually work out in a practical way? I guess, or maybe um, you can answer a different question.
1: Well, I'll, I'll give you the Sunday school answer. Jesus. Um. <laughs> But it, right. I mean, it, 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 it is it is the answer. Um, you know, it, when when we look at the way Christ lived His life, when we look at the way that, um, you know, he the way he talked about unity, the way he thought about it, I mean, if we look at John seventeen, you know, when he prays for for the unity of the disciples. You know, and um, he, he pray, also prays for the unity of the church. Um, you know, he, in, in John seventeen twenty one he says, you know, I pray that they, about the church, I pray that they will be one just as you are in me and I am in you. I pray that they will also be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me so that we can be, they can be one just as we are one. I'm in them and you are in me. So that, or so that they will be made perfectly one. Then the world will know that you sent me, and that, they, that you have loved them just as you have loved me. It, the the unity, you know. He keeps talking about love. He talks about being in the Father, in in the Son, in us. All of these things. It, it's you know, it's a sense of being like Jesus, um, being in Jesus, um. And you know, that that's that's a difficult idea to wrap our minds around sometimes because I think we um you know, while, while this language is in scripture as well, but you know, we talk about inviting Jesus into our hearts and, and and that language is 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 not foreign to scripture, but this language of being in Christ, in Jesus, more you know, of moving ourselves into In you know, or not even moving ourselves, but but realizing that we are in Christ, um, and living as as because we are in Christ, um, what does that look like? Well, Philippians two. I mean, that's where where you know I think is is a nice succinct way, you know, and where Paul says. You know, adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and becoming like human beings. When he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly honored him and gave him a name above all names. So at the name of Jesus, everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth might bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we empty ourselves. I mean, it, we we ask, what does it mean to show that other person love? And if we're all asking that question, that's going to look... I don't even know what that's going to look like because it, it's such a foreign idea.
0: Yeah, and it's not just like... If we're talking about the church's witness in the world today, like the John 17 passage is so it's like a mind blowing passage. There's so much in just the last six verses of John 17. Um, some of which you, uh, read that, that, that are like, they're dramatic. And then they're, then Paul is explaining in, to some extent how to apply this in Philippians too. Um, but he's like, uh, He says that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and and loved them even as you loved me. So what we really need to do to get people to recognize, you know, come to Jesus is to have, I don't know, a cooler church service or maybe uh, more ancient church service, depending on your leanings. We need to have this, we need to have that event. We need to have these things for the kids and that thing for the adults and this, for that. And we need to make sure we don't ask for money up front because it gets on people's nerves. Or maybe we need to ask, ask for money because then we need to know that people have to sacrifice and we need to, you know, we need to know what, what we need above all is to become perfectly one. So that the work, then the world may know, Because when the church is functioning in the same way as the world, but just has added on God and some rules, everyone's looking at him going, why would I believe in that God? Why do I even care? You're just the world, but you're not allowed to do quite as many things, and you have a few extra entities that you believe in. And and
1: And, you claim that you're going to get some bonus afterlife about
0: it yeah and i don't need an afterlife to be good i know that murder is wrong and i'm not going to murder people because i know it's right not to murder people i don't need to be threatened with hell not to murder people um and and you hear this is where all the arguments when the and this in order to really understand what i'm trying to get at you really if you haven't listened to the previous podcast that you should come up because you should because it'll explain sort of what i'm getting at but we we function according to the basic power structures of this world. We try to maintain control uh, through some sort of tertiary doctrinal purity, and the the distinction between denominations. A lot of them is so minimal, and so and a lot of it. I'm going to shut up. Just know Tra- that Tra- I have a little Tra- bit of Tra- a i'll
1: Tra- need to become Catholic.
0: <laughs> well, but here's the interesting, I'm not saying you should be, I'm, I'm not a Catholic, but, uh, uh, what I think there's a lot of draw with people to go into the Catholic and Orthodox churches. It's become a pretty big movement because they're looking for, they're looking for a sense of, of, of oneness. They're looking, and they're looking for a, a an attachment to ancient ways. Right. And we're like always trying to change the church to, to try to try to be kind of cool or try to be more inviting, you know, we're going to take out uh, the denominational name out of our church and just be community church and, you know, whatever, blah, 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 community church. That way it doesn't look like we're, we're planting our flag anywhere doctrinally, which, you know, I don't really have any problem with that. Go for it. That's maybe a great, great idea. But the key element is that we may become perfectly one, right? Uh The glory that you have given me, I've given to them. This is Jesus praying to the Father, that they may be, so the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. But what is that glory? I feel like I'm heading into a sermon here. It's not clear to me, except, I mean, Jesus's highest glory was, I guess, death on a cross, right? That's when he was lifted up and would draw him into himself. So I, that might be what he's referring to. I don't know. Yeah. Um, uh, that they may be one even as we are one. Well, that makes perfect sense because how do we become one? Well, flip over to Philippians 2, become a servant, become a slave, even to the point of death on a cross. So what is the glory that Christ has given us? The capacity to die and in that death to find real life, right? To conquer death even as we surrender to it for the sake of the other. Because if you you surrender to death for the sake of yourself, well— you're just surrendering to death. Um, And so I've given that to, to, he's given that to us that we may be one, even as, even as Jesus and the father, sorry, I'm switching the pronouns here, but this is Jesus that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, even as the father, even as Jesus and the father one. Right. And we all know Jesus and the father are one in the same way that Baptists and Presbyterians and Catholics and Anglicans and Episcopals and Lutherans and, I mean, can I go down all the thousands of denominations and divisions that we have starting with the Orthodox and the Catholic division and, you know, 10, whatever it was over the Filioque Controversy? Um, So, well, ostensibly over the... <laughs> actually, a lot of other stuff. And from that, when we become one like that, uh Jesus wants us to become one like that so the world may know that You, the Father, sent Jesus and loved them even as you loved me. And then he he says this, I made known to them your name. This is verse 26. They already knew God's name, right? It's Yahweh. I mean, but name means, it doesn't mean, you know, Jeff, it means who you really are jesus has exposed that right and he keeps saying they keep you know when i think it's philip says show us the father and he says do you not know who i am <laughs> right you well, if you've seen me you've seen the father
1: I mean, and, you know, John 1, John one eighteen. 18, you know, no one has seen, you know, no one has seen God until Jesus shows up, you know, and, and, you know, we talk about, well, Adam and Eve, you know, we're in the garden and, you know, different people saw different parts of God in in the Old Testament, but like what, you know, and they, 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 you know, saw the, you know, the, you know, in the desert, they saw different things. But the point is that Jesus is such a clear, is the definitive picture of who God is, And until we saw Jesus, our thinking was muddled. Jesus made it clear who God is.
0: And what did Jesus expose? Well, Philippians 2, the one who is at the highest point to be worshipped and bowed down to, we should all be bowing in humiliated servitude to him, and he should walk on us as he goes about trumpeting his own glory. What does Jesus do? He falls all the way down to washing our feet, the ones who rejected him and hurt him. He comes down and becomes a servant to us and dies on a cross for us, like a terrible death, a humiliating death for us. This is exposing who the Father is, right? And if you go back and talk about the potentiality, actuality, who-ness and whatness, and and the control perception versus uh, which we had a little bit of debate about that, a control perception versus loving perception. This is just Jesus. The whole point is he loved us. But what does love look like? It looks like this, right? And so, uh, what did God? What did Jesus? Exp- how did he show the name of the Father to us? The very essence of who the Father is by becoming becoming a servant. Because God the Father from the beginning is self-giving. Right? So what how is unity found in the church? Well, it's by me putting my shoulders back and my chin up and saying, "I respect your I don't respect your opinion, but I'm going to use that word to mean I disagree with you, but we're not going to talk about it. But I'm going to maintain the safety of my position. I'm not going to argue with you so that we don't look bad." Sorry, this sounds really like I'm condemning them pretty hard. Maybe I should just respect their position of respecting positions.
1: Well, let, let, let me let me let me put a little tilt on things. Um, when when uh, both Travis and I were in grad school in Waco, we we both attended a, the same church, and when one of the the hallmarks of the church, at least what it strove to be. Was to um, really be a mere Christianity kind of thing. Like when when I moved down down there, I had lunch with the pastor, and I said, "So is it a doctrinal statement for the church?" And he's like, "Can you affirm the Apostles and Nicene Creed?" I said, "Yeah." He goes, "You're good." And you know, I hear a lot of churches say that, but then when it actually comes push comes to shove, there's actually a whole bunch of other things that are included in there that they they may not. You know, publish up front, but you really need to hold these other things too. But if there's, the, it's it's the most I've seen a church come to actually living that out, and the diversity of views that were held by the people in the congregation, um, and that were known to to be differing views. But you would still pass the peace of Christ with these people that you know, you had disagreements with and it's not that the, that the disagreements were off limits. It was the emphasis was always pushed back to where do we agree? What do we, what actually, what is the, the big thing that matters, which when you have that in mind, having these disagreements is possible because you recognize that your love for the other person can trump, the disagree can trump the disagreements that you hold because you agree on much more and much bigger things than what you disagree on. And I, and, and I, I guess, you know, when, when we take this to denominations, when we take this, you know, I, we, we say that, you know, yeah, the, the creeds are what, what the heart of Christianity or the, the the heart of the doctrinal Christianity is about, but really, I think what we're saying under our breaths a lot of times is, and all these other things, but we're supposed to act like we agree. So I'm just going to keep it under my breath and not actually say that these other things are what really matters because th- that's not what you're supposed to do.
0: Yeah, this is, this is a, an interesting – like I, when, when we say that we agree on more than what we disagree on, even there I'm a little uncomfortable with the, with the use of that sort of language. Um, cause it sounds like as long as I have, let's say I, I hold 10,000 propositions as true. And as long as we agree on 5,001 of them, then we can be unified, but that's not and really I, what we're no, saying. No,
1: no, no. What, what, what I'm saying is, is more along the lines of, And I want to be careful because I don't want to sound like I'm belittling anyone. But, um, it's more of, of, like in, in, in a marriage agreeing on how to raise your kids base, generally on how to spend your money. Generally though, those are some big things and you can, if you agree on those, you can disagree on what kind of TV show you want to watch at night or you Yeah, can- let's
0: well let's, let's 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 use the raising the children thing as 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 an example because there's a lot of uh I don't know particularly nowadays maybe nowadays where you're interacting a lot and everybody has 12 15 different books on how to raise their children and they're all correct okay. um and you get together and you're all uncomfortable because you're all, you interact with their children differently based on what who's your savior in terms of raising children <laughs> and uh um but there's a sense in which if you and your wife, or husband, uh, if you agree, if you both agree that you love your children and you want them to grow up to be well, then you may have have dramatically different perspectives on how to accomplish that. But you don't look at the other person and say you just hate my children, right? Right, you, because because you both know if you both truly believe that the other person desires what is best for your children, then you can have constructive conversations and you're willing to look at evidence. You're willing to change your mind because the problem is once we start disagreeing, if I start disagreeing with my wife about how to raise our children, I, as soon as the disagreement arises, I stop thinking about the children and I start thinking about winning Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I start thinking about me being the importance of me being right. I don't want to be humiliated by being shown to be wrong, and so I begin to argue, even to the point of absurdity, to make sure I win. But you see how suddenly I'm not acting as Christ, as a servant to others. In this case, to to the children, I'm now trying to bolster my own glory. I'm not receiving glory from the Father or from Christ who gives it to me. I am trying to gobble it up myself and make it my own. At By, by, by destroying the glory of someone else. I just need to beat her, defeat her in the argument so that that way I win and then I'm shown to be right. But suddenly the children don't even matter anymore. All that matters is me. And that's, that's the problem that, that comes up a lot. So if you, if, and, and, and at that at that point, then of course my wife or whoever's having the discussion would begin to suspect that I'm not concerned about the children I'm concerned about winning. The problem yeah. is at that point is that she's right. I am only concerned about winning, yeah. and I've lost the vision of of the good that we're aiming toward together. Exactly. Right. So, uh, part of it is we have to we have to if if we're going to be unified as a church, we have to look at those with whom we disagree. And I th- I think there are some limitations here, right? Mm-hmm. I think if someone cannot embrace the Nicene Creed. There's a point where I'm gonna say, mm, I mean, if you're on one side of the Filioque controversy or on the other side, I'm willing to go along with that, even though I know which side is the right side. But uh, but you know, you're allowed to be a little bit wrong. But if you're rejecting the fact if you're rejecting the idea that Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, then you're you're not a Christian there are some limitations, but even there, I feel like we're going to get into some deep territory here and I want to be careful, but let's, so when we're talking about what we consider tertiary doctrines, so, or maybe secondary, the Calvinist, Arminian debate, uh, questions of what kind of music to use, how you're supposed to dress, whether you should have, uh, whether there's, you know, seven sacraments or, you know, or whatever, uh, uh, those are, those are not, nearly as important as the central creeds. But this, even the central creeds, I think, arise out of. They're there to protect a fundamental, evaluative outlook, right? Because the Nicene Creed didn't exist, right? People weren't affirming the Nicene Creed in the first few centuries, right? When did the Nicene Creed appear? Was it the four hundreds?
1: Three twenty five.
0: Okay. For century is what I meant. Yeah. So, the, so from, for about 300 years, there was no Nicene Creed to affirm, but the Nicene Creed arose, I would say naturally as a response. So let's talk about, let's just talk about if I can, I'm probably taking this off in a different direction, pull me back. And it's, we're at 40 minutes. So we don't want to go too long. I don't think, um, especially after Joel made fun of me last time, but um <laughs> you look at something like the, like the debates about Jesus, debates about, uh, you know, whether Jesus was fully God or whether he's some sort of mix or whether he was a secondary, you know, uh, whether he's some sort of lower, lower level divinity, sort of semi divinity or whatever. And, uh, the simple, this, this, the church was worshiping Jesus from, from the beginning, they were worshiping Jesus.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And they're trying to develop a creed, or they're trying—they're having these controversies about who Jesus is. And what the people kept pointing back to was, we've been worshiping him from the beginning. You're only supposed to worship God, at least in the uh, what is it—the Latria uh, idea of worship, where the word idolatry comes from—the worship okay. of idols. There's, there's, there's giving worth to to a human or a lower. A lower entity than God, that is appropriate. And that's there's another word for it, and it slipped my mind. But the Latria kind of worship is the worship that can only be given to God. They've been doing that to Jesus from the beginning, or toward Jesus from the beginning. Therefore, the creeds are there to protect the values and the practices that the church had held from the time of the apostles. And then the Nicene Creed formed. And what did they say? Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Because if any of those things are false, then we've been doing this wrong from the time of, of Jesus' own apostles.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so, um, you know, and of course, what's the pressure, right? Well, he can't be God because he's in the form of a servant. Right. <laughs> right? Right. Well, now they'll think about where that takes us, right? He's, he takes on human flesh. Well, he, he can't because flesh is corrupt. Uh, no. I mean this the 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 debates about Jesus also shows that flesh itself is not fundamentally evil mm-hmm. right that's a gnostic leaning and it also suggests that god himself that the very nature of god is to be servant is to be self-giving mm-hmm. right so think about what happens when i reject jesus when i say that jesus is not the son of god there is a God, let's say I, I, I hold that, but I reject the idea that Jesus is fully God. I'm also rejecting the idea, there's there's probably implied in there that God can't be servant. God can't, God can't, that flesh is so corrupt that God can have no contact with it. it Think about all the things that flow out from that. And suddenly I'm talking about how we should despise our bodies or look at it lower and we're going into this Gnostic or semi-Gnostic area, or and I start believing that really control and power is what everything is about and God isn't fundamentally about love. And boom, boom, all these dominoes begin to fall down. And it suggests that even the debates, even the weird metaphysical debates about whether Jesus was fully God and whether he was mixed and all this other kind of stuff— Really relates. It all comes down to a recognition of this fundamental evaluative outlook that Jesus exposed to us in His presence by showing us the name of the Father and living out this glory. Right? It exposed all. It, it's all. It all relates to this the way that we live. And I can, if I say, and now you can go the other side. I can accept all the doctrinal creeds about Jesus, but if I'm a living a life of power, obsession, control, and selfishness. You can spit out the creed all you want. The demons can quote the creed. Mm-hmm. But if I'm just, if I'm at the level where, where if the church of which I'm a part, with a capital C, the church of which I'm a part, if all the better we can do is respect and keep our distance, distanced respect for one another, was it any wonder the church doesn't, or the world doesn't believe? I mean... Of course they don't believe because we're living out not not this Christian, not the Christian God, we're living in accordance with another kind of God. And is it any wonder that secondary and tertiary doctrines tear us apart? Is it any wonder that winning and defeating and possessing and having more is all that matters? Because we're living out the values, we're living out values that are heretical. It's the only way I can put it because our values, our evaluative outlook, is fundamentally opposed to the Nicene Creed. That's why the Trinity doesn't make any sense. That's why we struggle to understand anything about Jesus. Well, <laughs> is well, that is that all sort of making sense? If our evaluative outlooks are wrong, then we misinterpret everything. And and and
1: heresy is the correct word because heresy is is that which divides. And I mean, all you have to do is open. Right. Well, we don't have phone books anymore but you know log on and just look up churches in a in a city and all the different denominations are going to show you that we have embraced division over unity now not yeah. we're, I'm not going to say that there's not a time and a place for for denominations and I th- I think that there can be a very beautiful place for denominations that point towards unity rather than division but sadly that has not been The history of the Christian Church,
0: and and let's 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 sort of throw a bone to those who are uncomfortable with Christian unity, because if you look at the historical ecumenical movements, ecumenism is almost a cuss word to Christians who hold to doctrinal pure some level of doctrine, and I mean Nicene purity, right? Um, and the idea that holding scripture to be really of any value at all, as soon as you become ecumenical was always a boiling everything down until you can find unity because you don't believe anything, not anything really. In I mean, there's something about Jesus. that's kind of important. The Bible is kind of cool. You know, maybe throw that alongside your other books, but eh, let's just not believe anything. That way we can all get along. That's kind of historic. I mean, that's a little bit rough, but that's kind of historical ecumenism. Like um, that's not what we're talking about. No. We're talking about an ecumenism d- directly derived from what Jesus is saying Jesus is saying in John 17 and Paul is explaining in Philippians 2 right and it has to come from self-sacrifice. It has to come from from servanthood with one another. And that that doesn't mean I distantly respect your position while having nothing to do with it. it. means I'm trying to call you to greatness, but I do it by washing your feet. Right, I, call it, I try to call you to correctness, but I do it by sacrificing myself, right. not by trying to win. Anyway,
1: unity of respect is ecumenism. Um, I mean, because that's, that's right. I mean, it, it's it's where where can we where can we agree? Let's ignore everything. Let's minimize everything else. But that's not, yeah, like Travis said, that's not what we're saying. We're we're saying it is a unity in love. And that doesn't mean that we're going to have perfect agreement. That doesn't mean, I mean, in fact, we're probably going to continue to not have perfect agreement. Um, I mean, any of us who are married know that loving someone sacrificially doesn't lead to perfect agreement. Um, the, But, yep. you know, the uh, Colin Gunton in his book, The One, The Three, and The Many, he talks about how unity is not homogeneity. It's not about... Everyone thinking the same, being the same—that's not what uni- unity. Like I said earlier, it requires the hard work of love, it requires that self-sacrificialness, and that is what binds you together. That's what unites unites us. It, it, it's the way we love each other. I mean, as as cheesy as that you know '70s Christian song w- was, it gets it right. Um, they'll know we are Christians by our love. I mean, now, granted, you know, we can talk about how some of the, the other things with the song might not be good fits or or how easily it is to misunderstand what that means, Like which we, we've spent this whole podcast doing. Unity isn't easy. The thing to keep in mind, this prayer in John 17 is right before he's arrested. So as he's about to go to the cross, what does Jesus do? pray about he prays about unity he prays about being united in love and um i yeah but how often do we hear any anyone really wrestling with unity in a deep sense other than something that looks like ecumenism i mean it, we we need to i mean part of it's because it is messy and it, it gets ugly it, but it's beautiful in the end if we yeah. are really willing to do this
0: exactly and and there and what we're trying to do I hope I hope what we're trying to I hope what we're showing this is what we're trying to get to is that we're trying to trace this you might call it this middle path even I'm not sure it's middle at all between trying to establish a unity by forcing uh stringent doctrinal requirements way beyond the Nicene Creed so you know if you're an Armenian you're basically a pelagian and you need to be kicked out of the church. Uh, or, or whatever you know go down the list of and you can go the other way too or the ecumenism where you you respect one another's positions and therefore say nothing about it just to try to get to the point where you you come to that thing that you agree on which is almost nothing. Um, what we're doing what we're doing is we're, we're painting a path to show where the, I think the Holy Spirit oversaw the development despite how ugly a lot of the debates and stuff were, and the stuff that went on oversaw the development of the creeds, such that 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 we have a, a list of doctrines that protect that fundamental outlook that is manifested, that it, which is basically Jesus manifesting the Father. If you're going to see things correctly, you need to see them as best you can from from God's position, and that doesn't mean valueless object objectivity. It means seeing things through the eyes of love, love and servanthood. And that from love and servanthood blossoms this creed because if you reject any part of the Nicene Creed, you lose that, right? If God didn't create the heavens and the earth, you know, if it came from someone else, then whoever God is doesn't really matter if Christ isn't fully God, then he hasn't manifested the name of the father. And and the father isn't as far as we know, fundamentally a servant and you can go all down to the Holy spirit and the unity of the church and so on and so forth. Um, if you can't trust the Holy spirit, you can't trust any of this. And we don't know if there's, you know, we can't trust what has been handed down through the church. Anyway, there's a, there's a whole list of things we can go on. So this, the creeds themselves are protecting that in some ways, what we're talking about is extremely strict doctrinal purity, but it's for the sake of something else, right? If somebody reads, again, if somebody, if somebody disagrees with part of the Nicene Creed, it might be because they've rejected the fundamental outlook of Christianity, or if it could be because they were taught it or understand it through a wrong perception. And therefore, they're almost correct to disagree with it because they because they're reading it wrongly. And what we need to do is is coax them back in to understand. Coax them, that sounds like we're trying to be some sort of sneaky guy in a van with candy. But what I mean was we treat, try to try to describe it to them in such a way that they understand the value that lies, that lies at the heart of it. And then they read it correctly and they see, I think it's hard to, when you look at the nice and creed from this way, it's hard to see it as anything but beautiful. Right. And manifesting in the, in this beautiful unity that is not sloppy and lazy, like ecumenism, nor is it jerk, arrogant, uh, you know, every primary secondary tertiary and whatever fourth year doctrine is I you know you have to agree with that otherwise you're not even a Christian we also
1: want to caution that you know that, that you can you can claim to hold to the Nicene Creed and still be missing the point that, that yes we we want to hold to the Creed but like Travis has said it's it's about because it protects the evaluative outlook and if you're focused on using the, the creed as as some sort of tool, that's missing the point. The creed is to be a formative... is to form you in the way to help you have the evaluative outlook so that you can see things like Christ, so that you can become more like Christ. And anything... and any use of it beyond that is missing the point.
0: Right. The, the creed is sort of like Soviet Russia. You don't use the creed. The creed uses you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's, it's nothing like Soviet Russia, but that's the deal. Anyway, so ho- hopefully that explained. Do you have more? Do you want you want to say about this? No, no. Th-
1: this was this was better than anything I had had been thinking to begin with. So,
0: well, that's because I was involved. No, so hopefully that's that that explains. Hopefully that explains a little bit more about evaluative outlooks, and also explains how it relates to doc- How evaluative outlooks and doctrine relate to one another. And I really do think the doctrines, in many ways protected the. And this isn't this isn't from me. This is from other. I've learned it's from other people, but I can't recall them right now. Protected the practices and the values that the church already held, and therefore, we're not. We don't argue for the creeds for the sake of the creeds themselves. The creeds are there to protect the worship of the Father, the worship of the Son, and the worship of the Holy Spirit, and the life of the church as loving neighbor and loving God. They all are pointing to Christ and Christ is pointing to the father. Uh, That's just, that's how, that's how it functions. And so we're, I guess we're trying to show this idea of unity again, that stands between obsessing over doctrines that don't matter to just sloppy lack of concern um, and unity as a sloppy sort of, it's sort of like peace as a lack of, as a lack of warfare peace isn't just merely a lack of warfare it should really be this wholeness this shalom right uh-huh. and here unity isn't merely the lack of warfare that comes from respecting one another's positions unity needs to be this active drawing together and acting upon on one another and I, I i mean i guess how i would end this is i don't how do we actually do that in practical terms as churches i don't know if we want to answer that question now but I mean, I I mean, I'm not saying everyone else is guilty of this, and I've got it right. No, I'm saying this is a natural. Yeah, I mean, I don't hate other churches. I just don't active. I don't know if I actively engage myself with them.
1: And and I mean, I I, maybe this is a conversation for another time. And um, but I people with
0: people with more expertise in this area.
1: Yeah, yeah, people (laughs) who who may actually you know have be boots on the ground and, and, you know, whether as a pastor or or someone who works with a, a denomination or something, but, it, you know, it, it seems like it would be great if churches were trying to find a way to
0: yeah.
1: exercise this, or to demonstrate this unity. Um, well,
0: I will say, I will say that Tactical Faith, of which this podcast is a part, or um, connected with, or we're part of the TF podcast, and I'm on the board of Tactical Faith, we, we get involved with churches of all denominations. And let me be careful here, this is Alabama, but we we have even brought in Catholic thinkers and we received a barrage of frustration and anger because of that. Um, we've done interact we've done interviews with with Tremper Longman and got a barrage of frustration and anger with that because some of his positions don't line up with what a lot of politically conservative Christians hold. Um, and some of the some of the criticism is pro- is appropriate. The issue is, we don't have any problem with people being critical at all. That's what we're here. That's what we're here for. What we have a problem with is when people say, You you talked with someone that disagrees with my political stance, you can't be a Christian. And you're going, Okay, I mean, look, I, I think that's in John 17 somewhere, where if you don't, if you have a different political view, it's because. I don't know. There's something there about may they all be one, except those who don't have the right political view. And I know you're saved partly by having the right political view. That's somewhere in the book of hesitations. (laughs) Um, The idea is not, and this is what tactical faith is about. And that's part of what Joel and I are trying to do too. Is we're trying to open up the possibility for people to think a little more deeply and to draw together. And I'm not trying to make an advertisement of tactical faith. It's not like we make any money out of this anyway. But um, but but that we. We we create a place for dialogue, for growing in the faith, and a place where we can disagree with one another without automatically assuming that the other person is an instrument of Satan. Amen. So on that note, thanks for listening. This is Travis. This
1: is Joel. Have a great day.